0: Look at chapter 41, verse 41. It says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. It's amazing. How did this come about? Well, God gave Pharaoh dreams, and he gave Joseph the ability to interpret those dreams. Those dreams came from God, and the, and the dreams meant that there would be seven years of plenty, seven years of fruitful crops, fruitful grain uh, in the land of Egypt, and then there, followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph advises Pharaoh, after he interprets the dream, hey, you should get somebody to oversee this project and store up the grain during the years of plenty to have reserved for the famine. And so Pharaoh sets Joseph in charge of all that. Look at verse 47 of chapter 41. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food, from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure. The only problem is that the clock is ticking. (laughs) The the years of plenty are winding down. They're soon going to be over. And that brings us to our passage tonight. And in this passage tonight, we're going to find God at work in two ways. First of all, God blesses the world. God blesses the world. Look at verse 53. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. The famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. After seven years, those seven wonderful, productive, fruitful years come to an end. They run their course, and now nothing but famine. And this is not just an Egyptian problem. You need to understand this. Look at verse 54. There was a famine in all the lands, it says. Verse 56, the famine was spread over all the face of the earth. Verse 57, the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain. The end of verse 57, the famine was severe in all the lands. Several times that word all is used to show the extent of the famine. It's a worldwide famine. Now, some people think that means in this context, it's talking about just the neighboring countries around Egypt That may be the case, but it seems to me with the emphasis being again and again repeated on all the land, all the earth it's talking about, it actually means all the earth, and not only is the extent of the famine, you can see how great the famine is, not only is the extent of the famine mentioned, but also the severity of it is stressed. Verse 55, you need to feel this, by the way, you need to feel what the passage is saying tonight, how severe this is. Verse 55, the land of Egypt was famished, people are hungry. People are suffering because of the famine. Verse 54. Now, verse 54 does mention bread in Egypt, but that does not mean Egypt escaped the famine. It just means they've been storing up food during that seven years, stored up for a reserve. Verse 56. The famine was severe. Verse 57. The famine was severe. The word severe means to strengthen. The famine is growing in strength. It's getting worse and worse. In fact, one translation of the Bible and Verse 57 says, it puts it like this, the famine had gripped the land of Egypt. Things are so bad Uh, at this time in Egypt. They're they're really bad. So bad that in verse 55, look at verse 55, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. That phrase cried out often used in the Bible when people are in an adverse circumstance and they have to uh, find relief. They're looking for relief. So they come to, where else to go but Pharaoh? Pharaoh should be able to help us. We'll find relief from him. that's where they go. Now, there are recorded in Egyptian history two famines that were so bad that the people resorted to cannibalism. That's how bad it can get. This actually happened in history. And uh, in one of those famines, there was a great Egyptian chieftain who wrote this. We have his records. We have his uh, writings in history. The entire south of Egypt died of hunger. That's how bad it was. And their hunger drove them to devour their own children. Now, that's what you need to understand, the severity of this problem. Now in America, if we miss one meal, we think we start feeling hunger pains. (laughs) But we have food available everywhere. I mean, it's anywhere you go. Restaurants, grocery stores, fast food chains. If we want pizza, we simply go get pizza. We don't think twice about it. Uh, If we don't, we, we couldn't imagine being without pizza in this country, our staple, you know. If we want Chick-fil-A, we simply go to Chick-fil-A and drive through and get it. Uh, but imagine having no food in the grocery stores. Some countries don't have to imagine that. They've, Ken, you've probably seen this over in certain parts of the world where they have no... You know, Ken's never been to where without, without food. But, no, actually, he probably has seen that. Just kidding with you, Finn. I, I can pick on Ken. He, he can. Yeah, I was just thinking. Uh, the countries over there, especially Ukraine. No food in the grocery stores. Imagine that. Imagine... No pepperoni pizza. Now, some people can't even... That boggles your mind to think that. Imagine no Chick-fil-A. No food in the refrigerator. Imagine that. They are in desperate situation. In their desperation, they go to Pharaoh to find relief. However, he can offer them no relief. But he knows someone who can. And look what he says. He says... He tells all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. He has the answers... Now, notice Pharaoh doesn't call him by his Egyptian name. We'll go back to verse 45. Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphanath paneah um, That was part of Joseph's assimilation into the Egyptian culture. Uh, he had been given an Egyptian name. Uh, he'd been given an Egyptian wife. Uh, he'd been given Egyptian garments. And he's in the process of being fully Egyptianized. It's funny that in the moment of crisis... Pharaoh says, and this is the only record we have, the original, he really said the Egyptian. It doesn't say any of that at all. It just says this. Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. I think that's the name everybody knew. That's what they knew Joseph by. So he just says it. Now think about this for a minute. When the people in their hunger begin crying out to Pharaoh, uh, there's only one man he directs them to. He doesn't direct them to his wise men. He doesn't direct direct him to his staff. He doesn't direct him to his closest advisors. He doesn't even direct him to an Egyptian. He directs his people to Joseph. This is the man that Pharaoh and the country of Egypt are setting their hopes on. And this man is God's representative, of all things, in the land of idolatry, Egypt. And to think that he almost didn't make it there. Remember, he was rejected by his brothers. But that was the reason why he made it there. And the rejected one now becomes the most important man in Egypt. The Pharaoh says, go to Joseph, look at the verse, go to to Joseph, uh, verse 55, uh, and whatever he says to you, you shall do. And again, as I I did when I was reading Genesis 31, 16, you can read Genesis 31, 16 when you get a chance again, we talked about it then, I thought of what the the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, what he says, what she says in John chapter 2 and verse 5, at the wedding of Cana, they run out of wine and they go to Mary and she says, Go to Jesus. Whatever he says do you, do it. Now, we've talked about the parallels between Joseph in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, and I, it's overdone by some people, quite honestly. Uh, but there are parallels, and I'm not one to normally point out these kind of things. I'm not a big guy on typology, just as, as it actually exists. But I can't help but state the obvious here, that just as Joseph is the human instrument that God uses to save people alive physically, so Jesus will be the one that God chooses to save people alive spiritually, from spiritual death. So what does Joseph do? Verse 56, he opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. So as God gave him wisdom, it's paying off. What he had uh, stored up is paying off. And not only do they go to the Egyptians come to Joseph for help, also in verse 56, verse 57, all the earth came to Joseph, to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And just as God chooses one man, Joseph, to sell the grain, to store up the grain, he chooses one place to get that food from. You would think, oh, that's Israel, right? That's Canaan. No, it's Egypt. That one place is Egypt. People can't get it from anywhere else. They must come to Egypt. In fact, Egypt would be like all the other lands. They would have famine except for the one, one reason, and that's God. God made it so this land, Egypt, had the food. And because people everywhere must come to Egypt to buy the food, that means people in Canaan, just north of Egypt, must come also to buy the food. Look at chapter 42, verse 1. Now Jacob saw <clears throat> that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some from us from that place, so that we may live and not die. The ten brothers Of Joseph went down and to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, "I am afraid that harm may befall him." So the sons of Joseph, sons of Israel, rather came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now hunger is no respecter of persons; even patriarchs get hungry, as they did here. Verse one says, "Jacob saw there was grain in Egypt." Verse 2, Jacob says, I have heard there's grain in Egypt. So he says to his sons, what are you guys doing? Why are you sitting around staring at one another? Go get the, go, go to Egypt and buy the grain. And uh, in other words, his sons are doing nothing to try to resolve the problem. Now, did, they, did they not know there was grain in Egypt? I have to wonder, if, they, if, if their father knew, how is it they didn't know? They, they got around more than he did. They could see better. Later on, he's going to become blind or, or head towards blindness. They're younger. They should know. And then I thought of this, could it be that they're sitting around staring at each other because they don't want to go to Egypt? Maybe they don't want to go there. Remember back in Genesis 37, the, uh, they sold their brother to merchants. who they, Those guys knew those merchants were on the way to Egypt to sell, and they knew there was a slave trade in Egypt, and they knew that would happen to Joseph probably. And I wonder if they wanted to avoid going to Egypt. I don't know. But the situation is desperate. Whatever they want to do or don't want to do, it's desperate. Verse 2 says, Jacob says, go down and buy grain from that place. There's only one place to get it from, Egypt, so that we may live and not die. And we talked about the uh, desperation in this situation. Verse 2 talks about the urgency of the situation. It's a matter of life and death we're talking about. There's no choice for them except to go to Egypt. Now, again... We Americans cannot fully comprehend what it means to be starving, actually starving. In certain places of the world, they understand it all too well. We don't, we don't, just, we don't know this, though, here in this country. And I wish there was some way we could get it in our heads, but we, as, we, as the American audience looks at, listens to the sermon, and as I preach it, we think to ourselves, well, I don't even know what that's like. We have no clue. This is a bad deal. And, and it's just, know that when he, Jacob says, You know, we're going to live and we must live and not die. This is a matter of life and death. He's not exaggerating this point at all. There's more going on here than just the temporary need to fill their bellies. There's something else going on here that this is also about the preservation of the Hebrew race. They, the famine, once again brought on by God, well, God's providence is going to open the door for them to go down to Egypt. And we're going to get to that later. And in doing so, the covenant people of God are going to be preserved. It also fulfills a prophecy that was mentioned earlier in Genesis, which we'll get to later as well. Now look at verse 3, it brings up some unpleasant memories of the past, verse 3, then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt, ten brothers. Uh, Notice these brothers are called the ten brothers of Joseph, and we ask ourselves the question, aren't there twelve brothers? Yes, there is, but uh, Joseph is gone, and, and the other one, Benjamin, is not allowed to go to Egypt, and so we can say there's 10 brothers now. But the, the phrase 10 brothers of Joseph, that, that brings back bad memories, and it shows us this. This family is fragmented. It's, it's disunified. It should technically say the 12 brothers. And had they all been living for the Lord, all 12 been living for the Lord, that's what it would have said. But the truth of Psalm 133.1 had not been written yet, and the brothers, those 10 brothers couldn't have cared less anyway. Psalm 133.1 says this. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, that, that truth can apply to Joseph's brothers. It can apply to brothers in a country. Uh, people in a, it can apply to people in a church, especially should it apply to people in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. But oftentimes, fragmentation takes precedence over unity in a church over, uh, or even in a family. Oftentimes, that is the case. And the next several chapters will put a big focus on Joseph and his ten brothers. And I guarantee you, Jacob's not about to allow his son, his youngest son, Benjamin, to go to Egypt because he thinks that there's a possibility that he'll make this, meet the same fate that Joseph did. So he's not going to allow that. Verse 5 informs us that the ten brothers were among those who were coming to Egypt. Just envision this. There's a, people from everywhere going to Egypt. This is only one small group of people coming. They're in the midst of others who are traveling from all locations to go to Egypt. Now, last week I mentioned Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. In Acts chapter 7, verse 11, Stephen says to his audience, he says, Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food, none at all. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. There was great affliction because of the famine. Great affliction. That term means it's the kind of trouble that inflicts distress, that you feel distress in your soul. It's a pressurized, to be in a pressurized situation. You could translate it as oppression or even tribulation. Stephen points out to his hearers, this affliction, this great affliction, literally drove Jacob to go to Egypt and his, and his sons to go to Egypt to buy food. It's, it's, it's always interesting to me how God works through circumstances of life. We, we, would never, we wouldn't do it this way, but God does it this way. Psalm 105, verse 16. That tells, by the way, the notes. Your notes should have that verse on it, I think. If you have notes out there, I think. Thank you, Shane, for passing them out. But Psalm 105, 16 tells who exactly is behind this great affliction. It says this, and he, God called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. It was God that did this. We can't attribute the cause of this famine to uh, natural causes. It's worldwide. It affects all lands. And the reason given for the famine is not environmental issues. It is, there's, a, there's a theological issue going on here. God's behind all this. But God also provides a solution. So we can see the goodness of God in these circumstances also, like in Acts uh, 14, 17, God didn't leave himself without witness. He provided food for people. And so he makes a way for people to survive, and people must follow that way, or they're not going to survive. You know, as believers, we wish that people would show the same desperation for the bread of life that they do for the bread that perishes. That's John 6, 27. In other words, people should be just as desperate. They should be more desperate to find Christ to meet their spiritual needs than, they, than over their physical needs. Oftentimes they're not. Food is absolutely necessary for life. Yes, of course. But Christ is absolute, absolutely necessary for eternal life. It's not just about physical and material things. It's about spiritual needs. That's the most important of all. So the Lord is using Joseph to provide blessing for the whole world. And that makes us think of the promise to Abraham. Remember that in Genesis 12:3, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And here we see it again. Another way this promise comes true. God is blessing the whole world. There's a second way that God works in this section though, <clears throat> and, that got me, and that is God exposes the conscience. He exposes the conscience. Now, when I say conscience, I mean the collective consciences of the ten brothers we're talking about here. You're going to see these ten brothers in the next few chapters quite a bit. And believe me, their consciences need to be exposed. Those guys need to be convicted. They need to be awakened. They need a spiritual awakening to spiritual reality. They need this. Until now, these brothers have not been confronted with their evil. None of that's happened. In the next few chapters, their conscience is going to be awakened. You're going to see it. How does it happen? How does God deal with their consciences? Well, one step at a time. First of all, through the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. Look at verse 6, chapter 42. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Look at verse 9, the beginning of it. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. Now, notice that this process, as we work our way through this chapter, this process does not start of dealing with Joseph's brothers. It doesn't start with Joseph's, God's man, Joseph. It starts with God himself. It's God who brings the brothers to Egypt. It's because of his providential leadership, his plan that they even bother to make the trip. God has arranged it, so they must go to Egypt. He's working. They have no choice. Now, they think, they think the only reason they're going is to get food. That's what they think, but... And they are going to buy food. But God has some unfinished business with these ten brothers. And he's going to confront them. He's going to give them a spiritual wake-up call. verse alone is worth the price of admission. I love verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. This verse could not be any more telling or ingenious. Moses The author of Genesis is writing a literary masterpiece. He really is. Uh, And and the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is unparalleled in literature. It's amazing. And this verse (laughs) 6. This captures so many things. Every bit of this verse uh, reflects on what happened when Joseph was 17 years of age. Now, what happened back then? We'll go back to chapter 37. Chapter 37, verse 5. And we'll see what had Joseph 17. You remember this? Verse 5 says, Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and, lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, are you, going to, are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream, and he related it to his brothers and said, lo, I've had yet another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and he said to him, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And then we come to chapter 42, verse 6. Go back to 42, 6. And I want you to notice, first of all, the emphasis on Joseph. Verse 42, chapter 42, verse 6 says, Joseph was the ruler of the land. He, I was almost to emphasize it, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. Now, that doesn't mean that Joseph ran all around the land of Egypt to every store, every store city, to sell to every single individual who needed food. That would be a mammoth undertaking. There's no one who can manage that. That's why he's got people underneath him doing these things. But Joseph is the head of this operation. He supervises all this. And it looks as though Joseph met with foreigners who came in from other places, ...to interview them when they came into Egypt. And that's what he's doing here. He'll be doing this as we, as we look through the chapter. Now in, church, in chapter 37, their brothers, we just read it, <coughs> their brothers said to Joseph, Are you actually going to reign over us? You're actually going to do this? Are you really going to rule over us? Seemed unthinkable, unimaginable to them. And yet here we are 20 years later or so. Here, Here Joseph is ruling and reigning in Egypt. Joseph was 17 when he had those dreams. And now you do the math, and he's at least 37 at this point. Maybe he's 40 or so, uh, depending on what year it is in the famine famine here. And so he's 20 years down the road. Here he is ruling. Now, the brothers may have thought when he was 17, when he said all this about the dreams, this is just, he's 17. He's out of his mind. This is just the wild imaginations of a teenager. And yet God chose at this time, begin to fulfill this promise, this dream. Twenty years later, know this, God will fulfill his word. He will do it. Now, as to when he's going to fulfill it, we don't always know. That's up to him. But it will happen sooner or later. Joseph here is is ruling just as God specified to him. And the brothers, notice this, they're bowing down before him just as the sheaves and the sun, and the stars, rather, and the dreams, which represented the brothers, are bowing down in the dreams. This is not completely fulfilled, but the fulfillment is on its way. By the way, I was talking to Sandy about this. She was making some uh, pictures for the kids to draw. And and she said, what are you doing? Uh, Well, we're talking about the. I asked her, what's the sermon going to be about tonight? She said, well, it's going to be about Joseph and the spies. Actually, she asked me that question. And uh, I, uh, I said, look, you can do a picture about Joseph and the spies. And she said, have you noticed that in all these kids' pictures where they have that, that the, the Joseph's brothers are always standing up before him. He's maybe on a higher level, always standing up. And I said, yeah, the scripture says what? They're bowing down, not only that, with their faces all the way to the ground. Total humility. And they said, there's no way this is going to happen, and yet it's happening right now. Now, they don't know. Their brothers don't know that Joseph's dreams are being fulfilled. They don't know that. But the reader knows it, you know it, and they're going to know it soon enough. So understand that what we're about to read, is this process of, of, of digging truth out of his brothers, this does not start with Joseph, but starts with God. Starts with God. He's behind all this. God, Joseph, uh, God brought these brothers here to secure food, yes, but also to have their consciences awaken to the reality of their sin and guilt. And so that happens. And so how does God expose their conscience? Well, first of all, through the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. But secondly, through Joseph's accusations, through his accusation. Verse 7 says this, When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land, the nakedness of the land, literally. And he says, they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said, You are spies. Now, Joseph's brothers don't recognize him at all. They have the first clue that he's Joseph because Joseph looks like an Egyptian. He is clean shaven, whereas the Hebrew uh, brothers have beards. Uh, They don't expect uh, their brother to not have a beard if they saw him at all. Joseph wears the garments of Pharaoh's palace. He is wearing a gold chain around his neck. He speaks like an Egyptian. He's talking through an interpreter. Uh, he's also 20 years older than when they first saw him. And they would never in a million years think, oh, our brother's second in command in Egypt. No one would ever think that. They would never think it. And then it says, when he disguised, verse 7, when he disguised himself, it means he pretended to be a stranger. And he, to, to, to keep, to hold his true identity, or to protect his true identity all the more, and his harsh tone of voice makes him sound even more realistic. So what does Joseph do? He, tries, he decides to grill them. And he said, you are spies, verse 9. You have come to look at the undefended parts of the land. Joseph is accusing them of coming to Egypt to, find, uh, to, to try to break through their national security, to try to find areas that are unprotected, uh, areas that they can maybe gather to, to, to gain an entrance and attack it, uncover those kind of places. That's what he accuses them of. The brothers immediately proclaim their innocence. And they and they're very careful to be respectful. Verse ten, notice in verse ten they refer to Joseph as their lord, and they refer to themselves as his servants. Again, a reference to the dream, the fulfillment of it. And Joseph continues to hammer away mercilessly. Verse twelve, you have no, you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Verse fourteen, your spies. Verse sixteen, your spies. Keeps going like this. Keeps grilling them, and that leads us to ask the question, why? Why is, you ever wonder about this? Why is Joseph, is he just playing with their heads? Why is he acting this way? Why is he so harsh? Is he just being vindictive? Does he want revenge for how they mistreated him? Is that what's happening? I don't believe so. And I think the context of chapters 42 to 50 bears that out. Remember what Pharaoh said about Joseph? He said, uh, we need to find a wise and discerning man, and that's, you're the guy. You're the one who's wise and discerning. In fact, there's no one in, in Egypt as wise and discerning as you are. Joseph has, Joseph has always acted wisely. He acted that way from the beginning, and he's still acting wisely in this position of leadership. What is he doing? He's using a certain strategy to try to pull the truth out of his brothers, to reveal what's find out what is actually in their hearts. And if he had revealed himself, his true identity, all he would have gotten probably is a forced confession or what they wanted him to what they, what he wanted them to hear. Calvin says this, Joseph wished to ascertain the truth as if by putting them to the torture. In other words, he's, this is kind of a method of torture, torching their conscience. He wished to ascertain the truth, to see what was in their mind, whether they had repented or not, what had been in their course of life since he had seen them last. And I believe that's the case. Joseph's brothers, they rise up to defend themselves. In verses 11 and 13, they say, we are all the sons of one man. In other words, we're just family guys. We're, we're not spies. We're not in the spy business. As a matter of fact, we're honest men. Now, let me ask you a question. Are these guys honest men? Think about that one for a minute. They said, we're honest men. Now, they're honest men in that they're telling, that they're telling the truth about not being spies, yes. But that's to their character. These guys are not morally honest men. They're not men of integrity at all. In fact, they're just the opposite of honest men. They're dishonest men. They're deceitful men. They deceived their own father. You remember that? They deceived their own father about the disappearance of their young brother, Joseph. They said, oh, a wild animal killed him. And then they kept that deception up for 20 years. They've never told him the truth. These are honest men. I don't think so. And they're not even being completely honest with Joseph right now. And when they say to him, verse 13, one of our brothers is no longer alive. Well, I'm sure that surprised Joseph, who was standing in front of them, totally alive. They don't tell him the whole truth there, even. Now, commentators like to point out that Joseph was also deceiving his brothers with this ruse. Well, he's deceptive too. Uh, But whatever you want to make of this strategy, and I think personally it's a brilliant strategy, we have seen that Joseph is a man of integrity. All his life he's been a man of integrity. He's Unlike these guys, these guys are not men of integrity. Now, without going into all their past sins, and we could talk about Reuben, we could talk about what Judah did, we could talk about what Simeon and Levi did, but read chapters 34 to 37 and see what those guys did in the way of sins. But remember this. These guys, these ten brothers, they're guilty of a crime. They are guilty of a crime they have never been punished for. They have never been tried for. That was 20 years ago. These are not innocent men. Not at all. Not by any stretch of the imagination. And Joseph feels the best way to deal with them is to be very direct. Sometimes you have to deal with people, to be very direct. Chapter 37, these ten brothers plotted to kill Joseph. Not nice people. After some discussion, they said, oh, let's not kill him. Let's settle for stripping his robe of many colors. Let's just throw him into the pit while we have lunch. Let's sell him as a slave. By the way, you know what Joseph calls that in chapter 40, verse 15? He says that was a kidnapping. Joseph says they kidnapped me. They committed a crime, and for 20 years they have refused to repent. No repentance. They've never owned up to their sin. Never owned up to their crime at all. They have a hardened conscience. But now, all this time later, guess who brought them down to Egypt to be confronted? God did. He brought them down there for the day, their day of reckoning. They don't know this. And their collective conscience is about to be exposed, and God's going to use Joseph as his agent to do this work, to call his brothers to repentance. One commentator said, this constant repetition, when he says, you're spies, you're spies, you're spies, this constant repetition of the accusation is meant to unnerve the accused and to break down his resistance. Can you imagine them standing before the second in command in Egypt, probably shaking in their boots and their sandals? Martin Luther has something to say about this too. He said, the way Joseph dealt with his brothers is similar to how God deals with sinners who are led to repentance. Very true. Somebody else says this charge was a means of determining the character of his brothers, not personal retaliation. He's not trying to get back at his brothers. He's trying to expose them to get the truth out. So his brothers are feeling the heat at this point. But Joseph is not through yet. God continues to deal with their conscience. How does he do it? Thirdly, through Joseph's test. Through his test. Look at verse 15. By this test, Joseph said, or by this you will be tested. The life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place. By the life of Pharaoh, rather. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He brings Pharaoh into the picture. Bigger guy than him. That makes him more afraid. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, he brings it up again, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for for, for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Now, you can see what Joseph's real interest is, is, and that's Benjamin. He's concerned about his youngest brother, Benjamin. Now, think about this if you're Joseph. Since the ten brothers that treated Joseph, their second youngest brother, as bad as they did, maybe they're treating Benjamin that way, too. Could it be that Benjamin is the new Joseph? Joseph doesn't know. So he wants to find out. He's going to find out. So he designs a test to determine the truth. He knows good and well they're not spies. He knows that. But he does not trust them. Let me ask you something. Would you trust these 10 guys? I wouldn't. Not on your life. i do the same thing he's doing. Joseph is especially eager to find out about the welfare of his brother Benjamin, though. So look, verse 15, he's going to test their personal integrity. By this, by this, you will be tested. Verse 16, he's going to test the truthfulness of their words. See if you guys are telling the truth or not. You said you're honest men. Let's see if you're telling the truth. Bring back your brother. You say you have a brother? Bring him back. I want to see him. So what does he do? He puts them in prison for three days. Now that would give them time for serious reflection. I would imagine that if you're in prison, for any length of time, you have time for serious reflection about your life. Then on the third day, he talks to them and he makes a startling statement. He says, I fear God. Well, that's pretty stunning coming from an official in Egypt. What official in Egypt is going to say that? Uh, they were shocked, probably shocked to hear it. An, Egypt, an Egyptian who fears God? A land of idolatry? The ten brothers of Joseph couldn't even make that claim. They didn't fear God. Their problem was they had a lack of, God's, of the fear of God. So the Egyptian fears God, while the Hebrew brothers don't. But Joseph then makes this comment in verse 19. If you're really honest men, if you're really men who fear God like I do, uh, then bring your youngest brother back here. And, uh, and he says, and, and, and I'll believe all your claims that you're not spies. And in the meantime, I'm going to d- detain one of you. So I'll make sure you get back here. The original plan was to send only one of them back, and now he changes his mind. I'm going to only confine one of you. You better bring your brother back. Now, do you think all these steps so far that God is using, that Joseph as his man is using, is taking, do you think they're going to have any bearing on the conscience of these brothers at all? Oh, yes. They've been doing some real soul-searching, it's a very amazing what this experience in Egypt so far has done to them, and while they are still in Joseph's presence, they make a confession. Now they think Joseph can't understand what they're saying because this guy's an Egyptian. He's speaking through an interpreter. He has no clue of what we're saying. So they speak freely, and this is what they say. Look at verse 21. They say this. Then they said one to another, "Truly, we are guilty. Whoa, we are guilty concerning our brother." Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you? Do you not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. What a statement. This is a collective confession. After 20 years of squashing the truth, they finally admit their guilt, what they've done is wrong. They, now, they only admit it to each other. They don't tell anybody else, but you have to ask the question, why? Why admit it now? It's because their hardened conscience is being, is being convicted. They're being convicted of their sin, of their crime, of their guilt. They know they're guilty. God is exposing them. He's exposing their guilty conscience. Verse 21 has some new information about that Genesis 37 doesn't have. When Joseph was being mistreated by his brothers, when he was being thrown into the pit, when he was being... Uh, considered to be sold as a slave. He had pled with them. He had begged, with, begged them, please don't do this thing. Can you see him now? Think about it in your mind's eye. Can you envision him doing this? They're 17-year-old, but their little brother. Imagine your little brother. Their little brother pleading with them not to carry out their evil plan. Can you see the distress of his soul? Can you hear these cries of agony? It's a gut-wrenching confession they make. They just poured all out. We saw, they say in verse 21, we saw the distress of Joseph's soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. We just didn't care. All the horrors of that moment come flooding back into their memories at this moment. And now they are the ones in distress. They're distressed about this. This is so unlike these guys. They're not distressed about anything. Now they are. And Reuben Remember, Reuben did try to intervene in chapter 37 for his brother. Uh, He comes on and he he says, hey, I told you guys. What are you doing? Don't do this thing. This is, you're sinning against the boy. He calls what they did a sin. We're going to be punished, justly punished for what we, now we're going to be justly punished for what we did. We deserve this. Wow, this is a great admission of guilt. Tremendous. Verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. You can imagine Joseph's feelings welling up in him at this point. After all these years, he turned away from them and wept. When he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Of course, he understands what they're saying. He loses his composure. He moves away to weep. That shows he's not out for revenge. Joseph is not out for revenge. He's a compassionate individual. He just wants them to be honest men. They said they're honest men. He just wants them to be honest men. In actuality, state the truth. Joseph fears God. He wants what God wants. He's not trying to hurt his brothers. So, as promised, he decides to keep, he picks out, not the oldest brother, Reuben, he picks out Simeon, the next oldest brother. I think I'll keep you here in check until we check on Benjamin's welfare. You stay here in confinement. God is working on their conscience. Finally, God works on their conscience through Joseph's order, through his order, verse 25, Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and restore every man's money in a sack to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned. Behold, it was even in the sack, and their hearts sank." And they turn trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now when they realize that they've, uh, their money's been returned, even with extra grain, all kinds of extra supplies, they only have one response, verse 28, their hearts sank, turned trembling saying, what is this that God has done to us? They don't say, what is this that the Egyptians have done to us? That would have been logical, they don't say that. And I think this is the first time, you can, you can check me on this, I think this is the first time these brothers, these ten brothers, mentioned the name God. Oh, maybe God's in this now. They, they do that because God is working on their conscience. It's not Joseph, it's not Egypt, it's not the Egyptian officials, it's God working on their conscience. In one sense, Joseph is like a prophet. He's like a Puritan preacher who chooses his words carefully and builds a case in his sermon against uh, sinners who are rebellious against God. I see Joseph that way in this section. Sometimes people are in a, are in a deep spiritual slumber. So deep in a slumber, they need to be awakened out of, out of their slumber with, in a very stern manner. Sometimes it's the case. That's not a bad thing. Some people need that. God is at work in the lives of these brothers. Remember, they're gonna represent the 12 tribes of Israel. God is at work. They're in desperate need a food, yes, but they're, all, they're in greater need of a spiritual awakening. In Egypt, they get more than, their bargains, than they bargained for. They didn't plan on any of that. Now, maybe tonight there's someone here who's haunted by memories of past unconfessed sins, of unrepentant sins. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I did stuff in the past I'm, I regret. I haven't ever repented of. I've never done that. Or maybe there's present sins. And this could be me or you. It could be all of us, any of us that are troubling our conscience. Maybe it is. The Lord's waiting patiently for you. He'll he's wait, He'll wait patiently. He'll work if you're one of his, If you belong to Him, He'll work on your conscience. He'll convict you of sin. He's waiting patiently to humble for you to humble yourself, and to pray, and to seek God's face, and to turn from your wicked way. Don't ignore ignore that. Don't ignore the Lord's conviction in your heart. Don't, Don't turn your back to like when the brothers turned their backs on Joseph when he pleaded for them not to do that. Don't be like that. Respond to God. He wants us to be people of truth. He wants us to be honest people before him in the world. So we need his conviction. We need the Lord to call us back to himself on a regular basis. We need to respond to him when he does. Today, if you are hearing his voice, do not harden your hearts. Keep your heart tender toward the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're thankful for your word and what it teaches us. We pray that we'll take this seriously tonight, the example that's set down before us in the lives of Joseph and his ten brothers. Lord, help us to be people who are tender towards the Holy Spirit, not rebellious, not uh, rationalizing our sin, not trying to hide it, not trying to put it in the past somewhere, sweep it under the rug. Help us to confess our sins, repent of our sins, and be the the people you would have us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.